You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. So we're continuing our Luke series today. And last week, Justin did an awesome job walking us through Luke 12. Next week, he's preaching on trunks, so don't miss that. Um, And he kind of walked us through this passage where Jesus is... uh, teaching uh, how the final judgment of God is coming, right? And how uh, the time is near and he will indeed return one day. And so we should repent. And in today's passage, we kind of see a continuation of that theme of repentance and how the tragedies of this world should lead us to repent before him. And what's interesting about this passage is that Jesus is actually going to confront their assumptions He's calling them to repentance, and he's again going to show how he alone is able to meet them in their brokenness. I remember several years ago when we lived in Louisville, we were getting ready to move to Birmingham, and I was on my way to work. I was almost probably a block away from my office, and this car comes out of this shopping center and T-bones my car. And immediately my car flew into the left lane. There's incoming traffic. So I see all the smoke. I get out of my car and I lay down on the side of the road with my white shirt to make sure they knew it's their fault, not mine. (laughs) And yeah, I'm serious. (laughs) Turns out my, my car was totaled, and but everyone was okay. Uh, The lady did admit her fault. After I yelled some things and everyone was okay. But typically when something like this happens, your first reaction is to ask, well, why did this happen? I'm just going, it's Monday, I'm on my way to work. Why would this happen to me? And that common reaction is actually something that's been around for a long time. When bad things happen, people tend to ask, why would this happen to me? And some of us quickly jump to conclusions, maybe saying, hey, maybe God's teaching me a lesson, right? I wasn't kind to my wife yesterday, and now Jesus is going to punish me by my car getting totaled. Some of us will jump and just say, hey, maybe this is an attack from the devil himself, right? I'm just walking, I'm going to work and the devil's trying to get me. Others of us uh, will look at brokenness in our world and just think, well, maybe, you know, if, if the government functioned differently, then maybe this wouldn't happen. And others will even go as far as arguing that stuff happens to people because they shouldn't have been doing that thing, Right? Do any of these sound familiar? It's our natural response to when we see tragedy to question why are things happening around us? And when we encounter natural disasters, tragedies, injustice, sickness, and all sorts of brokenness in our world, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out why is this happening? Why are the things that go in wrong in this world. But if we spend all our time trying to focus on what's going on and trying to figure out what's happening around us, we actually miss this beautiful story that God is creating through his redemption, where he's making all things new and he's actually working in the midst of our brokenness. 
And then the same way in today's passage, we see that they're going to question. They're going to bring a question up to Jesus about why did this happen? Why is it that we see tragedy in our world? And I believe Jesus wants to remind us that our suffering and tragedies today are temporal and they should lead us to repentance. So Jesus is going to confront their assumptions and he's going to use a parable to uh, help us understand what that looks like. Um, and then he's also going to heal this woman. So in chapter uh, in, in chapter 13, he begins with uh, some people who are in the presence of Jesus. And these people come to inform Jesus of something that's happened that's actually quite tragic. See, these people inform Jesus that there were some Galileans who were slaughtered by Pilate. And not only were they killed, but the Bible tells us that their blood had been mixed with the sacrifices of the people. And understanding how sacrifices worked, we can assume this was probably at the temple or on the way to the temple as they were going to offer their sacrifices to God. And Pilate commits this horrendous crime and then involves the people of God in it as well. And when they bring this before Jesus, they respond the way we probably would too. They say, well, well Jesus, why did this happen? Surely, surely they're worse than us. Surely they probably did something wrong that's caused this to happen. And I love the way Jesus responds because Jesus immediately actually brings up another example and says, well, what about the people at Siloam? They were working, the tower falls on them. What about them? Are they worse than you? And Jesus responds the question immediately and says, of course not. See, Jesus not only wants to confront their way of thinking, but he wants to help them understand how they should respond to the things around them. And church, it may seem silly, right? The way they respond there, it may seem silly to actually point the finger and say, surely they're, they're, they're the ones that are wrong, right? But this question about why tragedy happens in our world comes up all the time. Barna Group, who's a Christian research uh, firm conducted a poll uh, not too long ago where they asked, actually asked a bunch of people if they could ask God one question and they knew Jesus was going to answer it, what would it be? And the most common response they got in this poll was actually, why is there pain and suffering in the world? I remember when I was in high school, I was uh, taking a music uh, history class and uh, I had a professor who was an atheist and she pulled me aside. She found out I was a Christian. I was a pastor's kid. So she decided to have a conversation. I'm all excited, right? Thinking, hey, this, this lady might come to know the Lord because of me, right? I'm, I'm in high school. So I'm fired up for Jesus. She comes up and the question she asked me is, if God is real, why is there so much pain? Why is there so much bad stuff happening in our world. And at that time, I didn't have a great answer formulated to her. It actually led me down the path of trying to figure out why is the world so broken? But this, this question about tragedy in the world is actually not unique to this interaction, but it's a question that if you try to share the gospel with someone, it will probably come up. 
C.S. Lewis, in fact, said this was the biggest question against Christianity from an atheist worldview in terms of why is there pain in the world? It's the biggest argument someone could have against Christianity. And so it, it causes us to ask the question, well, why is there pain? How do we understand this as Christians? See, subconsciously, we tend to think that both bad things and good things that happen in our world have reasons. When bad things happen in our life, we're left thinking about that interaction. We let it consume our mind. We think about the event. We replay it in our mind and think, is this some sort of consequence? Is there something that I deserve to, you know, to get this punishment? Have I failed to work hard enough? Is there something in my life that needs to change? Whatever it is that floods your mind, we tend to think there's a cause to our tragedy. But in the same way, we do it when good things happen. When good things happen, we tend to associate it with some sort of superior character. Or maybe some superior ability in our lives. Our response goes something like this. Well, I'm just really good at my job. That's why I got promoted. Or perhaps we say, I've been reading a lot of books on parenting. That's why my my child behaves. Good luck with that. Or perhaps the the most American one, well, I work really hard. So the good in my life is because I actually work really hard for it. And listen, there's nothing wrong with working hard or reading books or being good at your job for that matter. I think those are all good things that Jesus wants. But what Jesus is saying, hey, is a proper response to both the good and the bad in our lives. Isn't, shouldn't be self-centered, but rather should be focused on repentance and Jesus. See, Jesus is trying to help us understand that these tragedies that happen, the brokenness in our world that happens around us should lead us to repentance. He says it twice in, in these first verses. He confronts their assumption. He says, no, in fact, if you don't repent, you'll perish too, just like them. He's saying, yo, these, these tragedies should remind you that you live in a broken world, that you too are broken, and your only hope for escaping suffering, for escaping this brokenness is through repentance and faith in Jesus. So in order for us to understand what repentance looks like in Jesus' fashion, he's going to use a parable. And so he tells this parable. Look with me at verse 6. He says, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for three years now. I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it and put manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And this parable is probably one of the most uncommon, unfamiliar parables of Jesus. And the reason is because it kind of just sounds like, okay, sounds good. And so if you move quickly through it, you can actually miss the message of Jesus and what he's trying to communicate here. 
We see a fig tree and fig trees were commonly used in vineyards, not only to provide structure for those vines, but also were expected to produce fruit of their own. And in this parable, we see that this fig hadn't produced any fruit. And now you can imagine the owner of the vineyard coming in and just saying, hey, what's going on with this guy? Like he's supposed to be producing fruit. He hasn't done anything for years. Like what are we going to do with him? What's going on with this tree? And the vine dresser says, hey, listen, let's just give it another year. Let's, just, let's see what happens. I'll put this, some down, down some manure and we'll, we'll see if it produces any fruit. And if it doesn't, then yeah, you can just go ahead and cut it. And the owner of the vineyard goes, okay, sounds like a plan. End of story. And so you might ask, what does this all mean, right? See, this parable is, is, is meant to remind us that there will be a final judgment coming where our repentance and our fruit will play a major role. And if we think a little bit about this parable, we'd recognize that our repentance as children of God will ultimately lead to fruit. The more we practice repentance in our life, the more fruit there will be. And one of the ways for us to kind of think through repentance and kind of have a uh, maybe barometer to understand how well we are repenting before Jesus is not only, hey, how guilty do I feel or how bad do I feel about this, but how am I responding to people's feedback around me? How do I respond when someone brings something up that I did that shouldn't be there? How do I respond? Am I defensive? Because if so, then it's an indicator on how our repentance is going. See, in, in the Christian worldview, the repentance is, is a gate, right? The gate by which we enter the kingdom of God. But then in the same way, a requirement for us to enjoy relationship with God and bear fruit in our life. And in this way, Christianity is one of the most inclusive religions, right? That anyone who comes through the gate, anyone who repents, the Lord will forgive. But in the same way, it's, it's exclusive in that there's a requirement on our part to repent before the Lord in order to enjoy the kingdom of God. So the question we have to ask is if our proper response to both good and bad things in our life is repentance, then how do we do it? What's repentance? See, most of us tend to think of repentance in a couple of ways. Some of us tend to think, hey, I just, I just need to dwell on this. I need to feel the grief. I need to let this just, just stir in my heart. And we just dwell on this forever. Oh, I, I messed up. I can't believe I did this. How could I, how could I do this? Like, why did I say that? Why did I do this? And that's one response of what we think repentance looks like. Others of us are more like Lila. You look and you go, ay, 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 and you move on, right? <laughs> You're on to the next thing. But both of these responses in repentance are wrong because repentance should go further than just a quick, you know, sigh of relief and moving on to the next story, the next thing you're doing, but it should also fix this idea that we need to dwell on this grief and what we've done. 
And so we ask, how, how do we actually practice repentance in our daily lives? And what's interesting about repentance is that in order for us to practice repentance, we have to acknowledge two realities. And the first is that we can't repent unless we realize that we too deserve death. See, that's what Jesus is getting at in the first few verses of this chapter, that in order for us to truly repent, we have to recognize that the only reason we're still breathing is because of God's grace. See, this question about why there's so much evil in the world crumbles as soon as we understand sin. Because if we have a proper view of sin, then we'd understand that God doesn't owe us anything. This idea that God owes you this good life where there's no pain, where there's no suffering, everything's going well, is nonsense. See, if you believe you're a sinner and there's a God who is a creator in our universe, then we need to recognize that he owes nothing to us. That the tragedy in this world, that the suffering in this world, that the pain in this world is all due to us. And church, suffering can be tough, tough to just swallow, tough to understand, tough to encounter. When we see injustice in the world, when we see people in pain, when natural disasters happen, it's tough to understand why could this possibly happen. Those are tough realities. Some of you remember in 2010, the earthquake in Haiti. And I was, I remember crossing the border over to Haiti as we were preparing to take some aid over. And I remember how deeply broken this place looked. Not just in the, in the buildings that had crumbled and now were just mountains of dirt. Not just in the bodies that were lying on the street covered by tarps but the hopelessness in people's eyes as they wandered the streets of Haiti thinking, how do we get back to normal life? And I'm sure you felt some of that during COVID. <laughs> this hopelessness and understanding, hey, when are we going to get back to normal? And that can be tough. It can be tough to swallow that. It can be tough to encounter suffering and tragedies. And the reality is there's pain attached to it. That's why it's hard. My initial response as a kid wasn't repentance, but instead like, someone get me out of here. I don't want to be here. I'm never coming back. And when we understand suffering, we can actually, when we properly understand suffering, we can actually repent before God with confidence. But that goes to show, church, that in us there is this deep desire for things to be made whole. There is a desire for us to see things be restored. There's a desire, a desire for us to encounter justice. And if we walk around in our lives expecting that to happen all the time and for things to be good all the time, we're going to be living in la-la land. Because to think that is to have an unrealistic expectation of what happens on this side of heaven. 
And so first, in order to practice repentance, we need to recognize, hey, my sin actually deserves death. I don't deserve to be alive right now. But God in his mercy has decided that I get another breath. And that's the hope we have. And secondly, to practice repentance in our lives, we must embrace the reality that God is committed to saving you from what you truly deserve. See, in the parable, the tree deserves to be cut down. The tree hasn't produced any fruit, yet the caretaker says, hey, hey, give me one more year. Give me one more year. And he's, he's committed to this tree and making sure that there's fruit in this tree in the same way that Jesus is committed to saving you. See, Jesus isn't dropping us on earth thinking, yeah, they messed up. Good luck to them. That's probably what we would do. Instead, in his love and kindness, he says, hey, I want to redeem your soul. I want to forgive you. I want to restore you. I want to make you whole. And by the way, I'm going to be really patient and kind while we do this. I'm going to be really patient and kind while you try to figure out how to live this Christian life and then respond to me in worship. And he's so patient and so kind that in 1 Timothy 2, he says that he desires for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Church, God's patience and kindness waits for us to repent before him, to be able to enjoy communion with him and respond to him in worship. And by the way, church, if you don't necessarily feel that love and affection for God after understanding what he's done, we need to recognize that the path to affection and love for Jesus is actually the path of repentance. That in order for me to delight in my Savior, that in order for me to be loving and affectionate to God, I need to repent. Repent of my old self-centeredness, my old self-sufficiency, and recognize my deep Need for Jesus. Church, we need to recognize that if you're in this room here in Birmingham at Citizens, you're only here because he's allowed it to. And that should be what motivates us to worship him, to delight in our Savior, that we have been given an opportunity to take another breath, that he has breathed breath in our lungs to be able to respond to him with the kindness he's shown us to delight in our savior. And what's beautiful about this passage is that as soon as he talks about suffering and tragedies and how it should lead us to repentance, Jesus shows us that he cares about our suffering today as well. And he does this by healing a woman who had been in pain for 18 years. In verse 10, we see that Jesus is again teaching at the synagogues on the Sabbath. And you know, if, if Jesus is doing anything on the Sabbath, it's about to go down. <laughs> the religious leaders don't like this, right? And he's teaching and this woman comes in with a disabling spirit and Jesus kind of stops. And he calls her out. And he, he, he takes the time right at the peak of his ministry, right? Right at the peak of kind of developing, uh, you know, the, the kingdom of God is unfolding. His beautiful plan of redemption is unfolding. And Jesus says, hold up. I want to heal this woman. And he calls her. He lays hands on her. And immediately she's healed. And of course, the, the ruler of the synagogue 
didn't like that. And he doesn't decide to go talk to Jesus for some reason. But instead, he gets up and he starts talking about uh, uh, confronting Jesus about this and rebuking Jesus, which, by the way, don't rebuke Jesus in the synagogue, right? Not a good idea. But anyhow, he gets up there, he rebukes Jesus. And as soon as Jesus hears this, Jesus calls him out and says, Hey, aren't, aren't you untying your donkey from the manger and leading it to water on the Sabbath? And I can imagine just the room kind of like, huh, the guy's got a point. <laughs> Not only that, but people immediately start rejoicing. As soon as they see this woman being healed, they start rejoicing. And there are a couple things that we can understand here about this woman who's been suffering for 18 years and it's that God sees our brokenness see as Christians instead of wondering why there's tragedy in the world and if there's a God out there that can see us we can come before God in our pain we can come before God in our suffering we can come before God in our tragedy and know that he's ready to step in that is why, church, as, as a church, we have a time of confession and lament as we bring things before God that aren't done well or are part of what's grieving our spirits or things that we've done ourselves where we remind us ourselves that things are not the way they should be. And so we ask God for help. Lord, help us, help our hearts. Lord, help our world. That's why we practice lament. And secondly, just as much as he cares for your soul, he cares about your physical need. See, oftentimes we can feel as if our pain is going unnoticed or even question if God's really caring. We think maybe God cares for my soul, but as a day to day, I don't know. But in this story, we see that Jesus is at the synagogue. Redemptive plan is unfolding. And he still makes it a point to say, hey, I want to I care for your needs today. And so he stops in the middle of this and heals this woman who's been suffering. And church, if today you're in need, maybe that's physical, maybe that's illness, maybe it's resources, whatever that need is that you feel, I want to let you know that God sees that. And he cares about it too. You don't have to wonder if Jesus cares about your need. Jesus cares about you. And he wants to meet you there. And he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he, we can trust that he cares for us. And lastly, from, the, from this story, we, we can see that we too should, should rejoice when we see glimpses of hope. We see that people rejoiced immediately as soon as this woman was healed. And church, even in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of our injustice, in the midst of our suffering, in the brokenness of this world, Jesus provides us with glimpses of hope that will ultimately point to the eternal hope that we have in Him. And we should rejoice when we see those things. When things happen that are good, church, that's an opportunity for us to, to come before God and rejoice. 
That's why we seek the good of Birmingham to show people that, hey, there is a God out there who cares for your physical need as well. There is a God out there that is giving us glimpses of hope of what eternity will look like. That as Christians, we have hope for today and we have hope for tomorrow. That's exactly what Revelation 21 promises. He says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Church, it can be tough to process all our tragedies and injustice and suffering in our world. But we have to remind ourselves, and this verse reminds us that we have a hope in Jesus that one day things will be restored and we'll no longer wonder what happened. Why are things happening? We have a hope that is eternal, that is unwavering, and we can enjoy that. All our broken relationships, all our illnesses gone, all of the things that keep us up at night, Jesus is restoring to make a beautiful home that we will get to enjoy as well. For all things are made new. And so what do we do with all this? What do we do with repentance? What do we do with the fact that Jesus cares for us? And the first thing is we see a clear call to repentance. We see that if we want to enjoy a relationship with God in the place where there will be no suffering, where everything will be made new and we have to repent. And so if you don't believe in Jesus, I want to invite you to consider the fact that just as the tree had a deadline, you're not insured tomorrow. You're not insured your next breath. But we do have an opportunity to repent and come before Jesus and embrace the hope he gives us. And if you do believe in Jesus, I want to invite you to repent, to to embrace repentance as a way of life. And here in a minute, we're going to take communion and have a chance to repent before God and practice a humble posture before him, recognizing that the only reason we're here today is by his grace. And that through the cross, he's made a way for us to be able to be reconciled to him. And that's good news. Amen. Church, we can walk in repentance knowing his forgiveness is free. We can walk in repentance knowing Jesus' forgiveness is free.